Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Rakesh Rajani. Rakesh is Vice President for Programs at Co-Impact, which is a global philanthropic collaborative, works in the global south to achieve systems change. An impressive organization that has a focus on improving lives for literally millions of people around the world. Earlier this year, they announced a gender fund And later on, I'm going to ask Rakesh to tell us more about that fund, because I know that you've made a call for applications for grants, and I want to give some some airing and publicity to that. Just before I do, let me provide a brief introduction for our audience, for those listening who don't know you. Before you joined CoImpact, you served as Director of Civic Engagement and Government, I think, at the Ford Foundation. You are a Tanzanian by birth, grew up in Tanzania. And whilst living and working in the country, you founded a number of citizen engagement platforms and advocacy organisations. So you've spent your career really in the area of, of social impact, leading advocacy campaigns to deliver change, positive change that impacts um, human lives. You are an advisor or board member of a number of other global philanthropic organisations. I think I'm correct in saying the Hewlett Foundation. Google Org, HIVOS, you've advised UNICEF. I think you're an advisor to the Omidyar Group's Lubinate. You've got so many uh, credentials. So Rakesh, thank you for joining us. And if I may, tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background growing up in Tanzania, and why you've chosen to pursue this interesting career working to deliver social impact. Thank you, Marcus, and thank you for this opportunity to talk with you and your listeners. It's a real treat. So as you said, I'm Tanzanian. I'm fourth generation Tanzanian. My ancestors were moved by the British colonial powers as indentured laborers to build the railway in East Africa in the late 1800s. We then kind of escaped that work, what is now Kenya, to go to what was then Tanganyika, now Tanzania, and, and they became kind of small shopkeepers. So I grew up as a kid helping my parents in a little hole-in-the-wall store or shop in the central market in Mwanza, Tanzania, which is right there on Lake Victoria, uh, helping them make do. And, you know, we hustled. And I did that from when I was six years old. And I think many of the skills I learned then about how you get by, how you make things happen from nothing, uh, still serve me today in the work that, that I do in social justice. So, you know, how did I get involved in these things? Where I lived in my hometown, it started with seeing all these children who are homeless living on the streets. And I got very interested in their lives. I was particularly concerned that they were often being beaten up and abused, not only by the businessmen around, but also the very people who should be protecting them, such as the police. I started to get to know them and their lives and why they are there, and at times trying to defend them from this abuse. So I got into trouble myself. I was taken to court and locked up and things of that sort. And through that work, it became very clear to me that this isn't about just welfare. It isn't about, oh, let's help take care of these poor kids. 
It is about understanding the forces that bring, you know, compel those children to get be on the streets in the first place. And then to understand that the reason abuse continues is because of the, the distribution of power, that a group in society doesn't have power, doesn't have rights, doesn't have status, and others feel they can get away with whatever they want. So in one way or another, whether it's the work with children or human rights more broadly, or the work in education and governance, and the work I do today, philanthropy, the core understanding there is how is power exercised, who has power, who has voice, and how can we rebalance that so that everyone can live a life of dignity. Thanks, Rakesh. You find yourself now with Co-Impact. I wonder if you could tell us more about this organization and, and your role there. Thank you. So Co-Impact is a relatively young initiative. We've been going for about five years, and, and the work has really only been actively strong in the last three years. Co-Impact is it's, it's a funder collaborative, which is a way of saying that a number of funders have come together instead of each one doing their own thing, to come together to jointly learn from each other and pursue a shared goal, which is how do we support organizations to have impact at scale, as opposed to in small projects, which may be impressive, but don't reach scale. And what is core to the understanding, core insight behind co-impact is that if we want to have impact at scale and have that impact last over time for it to endure, one needs to address systems. You need to un understand how systems work, or rather how they are not working for at least some people, how they are not producing outcomes, and how can we make sure those outcomes are equitable outcomes, particularly gender equitable outcomes. So we come together to support efforts to do systems change. And the kind of research that was done that led to the formation of Coimpact showed that there were people in the world trying to make this deep change happen. But they didn't have the right kinds of support. The, the kind of funding and support they could get was either too short term, too little, too late, with too many strings attached, which hampered the ability to do deep change. And so these funders came together and said, OK, let's pool our resources and give these amazing leaders around the world in the global south the runway they need to be able to make this deep change happen in, in a number of countries. I know that you're doing a lot of work in the area of gender and, and women empowerment. I mentioned in the introduction that you've launched a call for applications for this year, which I think finishes in, in December, but perhaps you could give us the exact dates in a moment. You're inviting, as I understand it, up to applications for up to a billion dollars of funding to materially change the status of women in the global south. You've prioritized a number of countries within the Global South. Could you elaborate more on, on what's motivated the establishment of that fund and what you hope to achieve? Absolutely. So let me first kind of answer the why question, and then I can give some practical information about the fund itself. So as I was mentioning earlier, it's, it's about systems, right? The reason things either work or don't work is around how systems are organized. And when we say systems, we mean like health systems or education systems or economic opportunity systems that allow people to get out of poverty. And if you look at systems around the world, in any country around the world, we find that there are two core problems. One is that these systems don't produce outcomes. And certainly even where they produce outcomes, they are not fair, meaning some people benefit and others don't. So you go through the motions. For example, kids go to school, they spend you know, five, six, eight hours a day in school, you know, diligently, but at the end, they still cannot read or write, as the data shows. Or you have an entire health system, 
but you go there and you don't get the treatment you need, you don't actually get healed. And similarly, a lot of the kind of say social protection programs, for example, don't end up helping the very people such as women-headed households that are meant to benefit because of the ways in which they are designed. And then the other deep problem in system is they are just discriminatory. Leave out half the women. You, you look at health around the world, most people who work in health are women, but the leaders are mostly men. If you look at the design of the program, the rules of the game, the criteria around, for example, who gets hired, who gets promoted, who becomes a leader. Uh, if you look at the way a program is designed in terms of working hours, in terms of what concerns get heard, you find that they are incredibly biased. So if you try to organize a system to help people, but they are designed in a way that is gender blind, that excludes women or excludes uh, people of color in the case. So in South Africa, for example, it's often about race and class. In the case of India, it's often about caste as well. So it's, it's very intersectional. It's, uh, it's, it's about women and gender, but it's also about caste. It's also about race, these contextually relevant factors. Then that system, even if it works, doesn't really work because it leaves out half the people or sometimes even, even more. The gender fund, when we say gender, we bring this intersectional lens. What we try to do is to support partners to say, go into a particular place, do a deep analysis, root cause analysis of how is the system not functioning? Who is it leaving out? What kind of fulcrum or what kind of lever can you use to change that system to be both more effective as well as to be more inclusive? So we don't do projects. We don't, you know, sometimes what people do is when they see government not working, what they do is to say, oh, government is too messy. It's too hard. We'll go out and we'll set up our own project, which we can control and deliver results. And that's great. But that's great for the people who benefit from the project. As soon as the project ends, then, you know, you go back to the status quo. And then usually when you look at projects, they only benefit a small number of the people who need to benefit. When you focus on systems, and often it's government systems, sometimes market systems, what you do is you change the underlying infrastructure, which is meant to work for people. And you make sure that you know people are really bending, particularly those who have been left out. In our experience, if you design a system to reach the hardest to reach, to include the ones who have been most excluded, then the system not only works for them, but it works better for everyone. So the gender fund seeks to do that. We make grants, a few grants at a kind of global and regional level, but most of our money goes to work at the country level. And we focus on 13 countries, uh, as you pointed out, Marcus. Uh, you can find those countries on our website, uh, www.co-impact.org. You'll see the open call document there, which will give you all the details. Uh, many of those 13 countries are in Africa, uh, in, in Southern, East and West Africa. Here we are looking for, we are making different sorts of grants, essentially to civil society actors who will work with systems, often public systems, to be able to change them in the way that I described, to make them more effective and make them more inclusive. Relative to other funders, I think we give larger grants. We are open to making larger grants long-term grants, because we know that systems change takes time. So this is not a two-year grant. It's often a five, sometimes a six-year grant. The way we work is we recognize that the leaders of change, the people best placed to do the thinking and the action, are the Global South-rooted organizations on the ground. So our grants do not go to 
international NGOs in London or Washington or Paris then fly into Africa to make a change. No, our grants go to organizations deeply rooted in the context in which they are working, led by people who bring that history and lived experience to make the change happen. And we give them this long-term support to make the change in their own countries. It's a really exciting opportunity. Please check us out. It's, it's a very specific opportunity, though. It's not for everyone. There are many great things that happen in the world that we don't support. But for this sort of deep systems change, we, it, it's, it's a great opportunity to make a large change happen in those countries. Thanks, Rakesh. Thanks for revealing more about the Gender Fund. How long are the call for applications open for? Do you know that? Yes. So... The country grants for this round, we expect to make a round every year. It closes on December 20th. So that's the firm deadline. So we have about almost two months remaining on that to send in. And initially, we asked for just relatively brief concept notes. We're very mindful of the fact that these organizations are very busy. And we don't want to ask you to spend a lot of your time applying for something that you may not get. So initially, what is something like a four-page concept note that you submit, and then we will choose some of the most promising ideas and then ask them to submit more fuller proposals later on. Great. Thank you. So there, our audience has heard more about the fund. I wonder if I could talk to you about the macro perspective, particularly as it relates to the continent of Africa. Mm. You mentioned earlier the extent of discrimination against women. My own observation has been, whilst it's profound across most of our societies, if not all of our societies, it's very different in each geography. I wonder to what extent, as you receive applications from grantees, do you expect a big diversity in approach from organizations in terms of how they're going to move the needle in achieving greater gender parity and more women in leadership positions, frankly? Yes, you're absolutely right that while gender discrimination exists in every society on earth, there's not a single country in the world where you don't have that, it manifests itself in different ways. And we, are, we recognize and we, we welcome that diversity in the applications. In fact, because context matters, is that's why we give preference and support organizations that are rooted in those contexts because they are best able to read their own, not only what the problem is, but also what the opportunity is, what it will take move the needle significantly to bring about more gender equality. And even the reviewers, right, who are going to assess these, it's not like we are all sitting in New York and making those determinations. We are very much going to rely on local experts in the regions, living and working in the regions in which we will support the work, to help us assess those proposals that come to us and see whether they are worth giving the, the support. And then once we've selected groups to give funds to them, our support to them is very much one that recognizes that they are the one in the driver's seat. So we don't think of them as kind of a, a subcontractors of our vision. It, rather, we see ourselves as in service of their vision and support an ecosystem of actors from the region who are best able to make those contextual determinations. I should also say, I think one of the exciting things about having a fund like this is the opportunity for learning across mm -hmm. contexts. So there may be work in India that is super exciting to work in South Africa, and those groups can learn from each other. In the work we already do, that is happening, where they are connecting with each other and learning from each other and improving their work. And that's truly, truly exciting. Great. You spoke a little bit earlier about a focus on governance systems, but also on, on market systems. 
Within the organisation that I lead, I have a group of colleagues spread across the continent who very much operate at the intersection of markets and the state, the intersection of governments and largely industry. We see the importance of policy. Policy really matters. Being able to affect policy change, a vitally important element of, of achieving systems change. But it is not sufficient. And more often than not, in, in my experience, market-led solutions are also required. You need to, as you were saying, change market systems. Um, not least if you're to achieve the sort of scale that I know you're ambitious to achieve with the sort of hundreds of millions of beneficiaries that you're looking to target. You've spent a career now working on social impact and promoting social impact causes. I wonder if you could share with us a perspective on really achieving systems change and the balance that you see there between policy reform, changing governance systems, and on the other hand, market-led solutions and responses? I think that's a great question. So first, you're absolutely right. Policy is necessary, but not sufficient. Getting the right policies is a critical piece of the puzzle, but we find that the, the most common constraints, the things that often fall, are not because of bad policy, but because of the implementation or execution of that policy failing, or, or you have a collective action problem, right? You have a number of pieces that need to line up and work synergistically, and that doesn't happen. When we talk about market systems, you know, we mean specifically not so much how one can use markets to benefit people, you know, that you, are, you have programs, for example, that piggyback on markets to be able to, for example, send messages down, right? Uh, that's important, but what we really mean is things like how do markets work optimally and inclusively for people, and how do they create opportunity it maximizes the potential for people, but also maximizes the potential to grow an economy. I'll give you just two quick examples. In South Africa, for example, that you will know well, you have a, a real problem of youth unemployment on one hand. And on the other hand, if you talk to corporations, they see opportunities to grow their business, but feel they are unable to do so because they don't have the right human capital. So here you is a kind of classic case of market failure where Corporate leaders are unable to expand their businesses in ways that they are keen to do because they have a human capital problem. And then you have lots of human capital that feels untapped. We're supporting a group called Harambi in uh, South Africa to essentially create a platform and strengthen the platform they have in order to be able to bring different actors, government, young people and corporations together to kind of help solve that problem. The other example that I can give, there are many others, but I'll give just one more. In, in India, you have a situation where it's a large country and in rural areas, you have women who are trying to kind of ensure their livelihoods, trying to create goods, and they are having a very difficult time accessing markets and adding value to them. We are supporting a partner there that are in effect creating, being able to kind of connect women to those opportunities, helping them add value to the goods so they get better rates, be able to essentially create a functioning market that works for women in rural areas and be able to access those markets. So those are the sorts of things that are really crucial. And as you mentioned, if you get that right, you can reach large scale. In the case of India, for example, we're talking about tens of millions of women being able to benefit from, from this opportunity. Did I answer your question, Mark? Yes, you did. You did. That's, that's very helpful, Rakesh. I have a follow-on, if I may. 
we've talked about governance systems, the importance of market systems, and, and from my perspective, market-led solutions. The third piece of the triangle, as I see it, is really around a what I call a narrative framework. She's been silent to date on this call, but my colleague Horata, who's based with me in Haberoni in, in Botswana. But just last year, Rakesh, Horata and I were reflecting on the election results in Botswana, where not one female member of parliament was voted in. So the only female representation we have in the parliament in Botswana today are in fact nominated members of parliament and nominated by the president. The president has that, that prerogative. And it wasn't because we didn't have female candidates contesting, but it must be because females aren't voting for women candidates. And such is the sort of paternalistic grip on society here that although we have women in quite high offices, it seems that women still lack the confidence to elect other women leaders. And so coming back to this point that I I wanted to touch on with you around the importance of of a narrative framework, or in this case, I think, promotion of inspiring women figures. I see that as an important missing part of the jigsaw here, that we need to give not just men the confidence to back women in leadership roles, but very importantly, and, and perhaps sadly, in some respects, women too. You're absolutely right. I mean, this problem of the limited political participation of women is a global challenge. There are very, very few countries that have parity in parliament or in cabinets. This problem is particularly acute in some areas such as economics and finance, or even law, in terms of high leadership in law, where you find very, very few women. If, if you look around the world and ask to name female finance ministers, you know, you'll struggle because they are just uh, very few. So, And the political participation of of women is absolutely crucial. Like you say, the problem is all along the chain, including where women themselves feel at times that women are not capable and will not give the votes to, to women leaders. I think multiple sorts of interventions are needed. One which you alluded to is the importance of role models. There's lots of evidence that shows that if you have women who serve in leadership, that other women can look to and say, wow, wow, you can be a woman and be a finance minister. You can be a woman and be a leader uh, in parliament. makes a big difference. And it starts with when you are young, when you're in school, right? If you are in third grade and you watch the news and, and all the leaders of the world are all men, you will begin to think that I can't be one of them. So, you know, and you, when you read history, textbooks, right, where in whichever country you're in, the stories you read around the big wars and who won them and who liberated your country is only telling you stories of men, it'll be very hard for you to imagine that a woman can be a leader. And both men and and women will end up thinking that, well, leadership equates to, to men. So I think you need to start with work further down in the pipeline in school. So one, some of the programs we support, for example, actively pursue that. We have a program in in India, for instance, that focuses on vocational skills. And they make sure that in those vocational skills, girls get to do engineering, for example, just as much as men. And men get to also do domestic science just as much as the women. So it's really important to start early in the pipeline by focusing on systems again. If you look at the pathway of how you rise into leadership inside a system. We often focus on the top leaders, who's, you know, who's the permanent secretary, who is the minister. Perhaps the more important part to focus on is the middle level. Who ends up becoming the community leader? Who will end up becoming the trainer? 
what is the pathway from you being a trainer to you becoming the, the leader of your village or the leader of your district? How then do the supportive networks work? For men across the world, they have their all boys clubs. They, they, they went to the same schools. They meet each other in the clubs. You know, they are the ones who say, hey, my son just finished high school. Would you be able to give him a job? Those supportive boys' networks is what allows men to rise into leadership. What would be the equivalent of that for women? How do you make those networks much more inclusive so that women can rise? Unless we address those systemic pathways of discrimination to be much more inclusive, we are not going to be able to see Botswana or anywhere else leaders in parliament. So you need to start addressing the problem early and systematically. Segue, if I may, on, on the subject of systemic change to climate, but it's really beyond climate. And forgive me, just bear with me, Rakesh, but it's obviously the week of the Conference of Parties. Global leaders have been in Glasgow this week. And my own observation, and we've yet to see all of the final outcomes, but my own observation, and there's a slight caveat here. My colleagues would tell you I'm a great optimist. I always see glass half full. But I think we've genuinely seen our economic system upended with the decisions that have been not so much arrived at, but accelerated this week. And I don't think that anyone alive today has seen systemic change on this type of scale before. I wonder if you see it in the same way. And as someone who spent a career working on systems change, really how excited you are or aren't to see some of the outcomes from Scotland this week. Thank you, Marcus. You're asking a really important and big question, you know, and I struggle to get my head around this as well. Yeah. You know, I, I think the simple way I would say it is that I am very pessimistic about what I see and the damage I see and the fact that we are not seizing the opportunity to make the deep change. We, we, we know the problem. We know what needs to be done. We have the solutions and yet we are failing to implement them at any great scale and the kind of urgency that it deserves. So that makes me very pessimistic. At the same time, nothing is inevitable. It's not like we are doomed to this pathway and there's nothing we can do about it. There's a lot that we can do about it. So I'm very optimistic about what can be done about it, right? And ultimately, in that sense, I think I'm hopeful that we will get our act together Maybe a little later, maybe after more damage, more irreversible damage is done, maybe a little bit too late. And yet, I am hopeful that given the people in the world, the activists in the world, the social organizations, the, the leaders who are smart, often women leaders, we will get our act together. So I'm pessimistic about where we are, but I'm optimistic about where we will, you know, what we need to do and that we will somehow manage to do it. And that's in the end, you have to be hopeful, right? You you have to have your eyes wide open around how bad the situation is, not be naive, but you've got to be hopeful and, and just focus on that part and work against the odds to create a better world. And that's, that hope, is, is that the same approach you're, you're taking to, to the gender fund or, or do you have a greater confidence in the sort of results that you hope those collaborators that you'll be working with, those grantees will, will achieve and in what sort of time frame? I'm very hopeful about what they will achieve because we have a kind of rigorous method to identify people who are doing amazing things, addressing the right questions, pulling the right people together, 
focusing on the right outcomes and goals and have smart strategies to do so. So I'm extremely hopeful about that. Whether it is big enough and powerful enough to turn the tide, well, time will tell. Even if the partners we support achieve great change, I know that there will be many other problems that we will not be able to address. So in that sense, one needs to have perspective and not hubris. But I'm extremely hopeful about what they can achieve. And I think the the point about systems change is if you can demonstrate what good looks like, what powerful change looks like, how a system that is inclusive can actually work better for everyone, that can be infectious. You can't predict exactly how and when, but we have already seen examples of how people can learn from each other. So just like countries around the world learn from each other to do bad things, for example, authoritarian regimes learn from each other to do bad things. Similarly, they can also learn from each other to do good things. And this is where the leadership question is important. You know, the more we have better representation, the more we have feminist women leaders, Dalit leaders in India, so who people of color in the United States who bring that lived experience, who bring that community experience of what it means to be excluded, if they're in charge, the greater hope we have that they will be able to bring those perspectives to bear in the decisions that they make and to make sure that those decisions are more representative and more inclusive uh, of the very challenges we need to face. So I'm, I'm hugely optimistic about what the Gender Fund can achieve. We've already seen that in the early work we have done. Uh, we've seen remarkable results that we can all be very excited about. I wonder if that sort of thinking around backing winners and the positive momentum that can be generated through contagion, has that affected the rationale for the selection of the six countries in sub-Saharan Africa? The selection of the countries is based on two sets of considerations. One is we looked at population size. So we generally focused on some of the larger countries as opposed to the smaller countries. So, you know, South Africa is in, but Botswana is not for that reason. Mm. But the other really important factor is what we call minimum civic and governance conditions. Our whole approach relies on civil society and government working together in an honest way to address real challenges. Frankly, you just can't do that in countries which are so authoritarian, where you, you can't have honest conversations, where civil society can't work with governments in a way that's open and challenging. So if you don't meet those minimum civic and governance conditions, we find that our approach is harder to do. So those two factors have informed our decisions, and, and that's why we're going to focus on the six countries. Rakesh, I'm conscious that for for the benefit of our audience, it would be helpful perhaps to have some practical examples, either of the types of projects that you have been involved with to date, or those you expect to fund as as a result of grant making that you've just made this call for applications for, just to sort of take our conversation from the theoretical into the very practical and to give some examples to any prospective grantees who may be listening. Absolutely, yeah. So there are many, perhaps I'll focus in on the work in Africa since the podcast is focused on the continent. One of our largest programs is called Teaching at the Right Level Africa. Across many countries of the global south and the world, not just in Africa, but across the world, you have a problem where kids go to school, but they are not learning. You can spend three, four, five years in school and still not be able to read or not be able to do arithmetic. And People have studied this very carefully and realized that there's a mismatch between what is taught, like the curriculum and how it is taught, and where the child is at. So if you're teaching somebody not at their level and in a way that they can learn, then it doesn't matter how many hours that child spends in the classroom, 
that child will not learn. Teaching at the right level is a proven methodology that uses a kind of very simple pedagogy that begins with where the child is and the level that, that they are at and uses a kind of interactive, simple pedagogy that any teacher in the world can use to be able to get them to grow. It's, it has spectacular results. You know, our partners have found that you know, within six months, a year, they've managed to make up years of kids being behind. And so what we do is we take this proven methodology and we support partners who work closely with governments to make sure that all kids are able to learn. Now, our largest program that we support is in Zambia, but it also is in a, in a number of other countries as well. I think Botswana is actually part of this network because in, in our first fund, not the gender fund, we, we did include other countries. There's also work going on in Cote d'Ivoire, in Nigeria, in a few other countries in Africa. That's an example of how you help millions of children go to school and learn. We have a program in agriculture led by a group called One Acre Fund, which is anchored in Rwanda, but also has work in Kenya, Ethiopia, and a number of other places where it's focused on smallholder farmers, both men and women. You know, often a lot of smallholders, farmers are women, and essentially trying to get them a better deal, whether it is giving them better seeds so the yields go up much more better access to markets, greater security over their land so that they are able to have that land in a more secure way, that they are able to, for example, grow trees on that land because they know they own it, which creates a better ecological system. And then most importantly, it's connection to the market in a more reliable and secure way. A lot of the time, this is a collective action problem, meaning if each farmer is trying to access the market on their own, just too small, too little to be able to do so. But if you're able to bring them together and have intermediaries that are able to bring together a set of small holders, you know, you can actually make it worthwhile for buyers, for example, to come in and buy it and pay a decent price. So that program is, again, working at scale, benefiting millions of smallholder farmers. And our work focuses on support, as I said, in those three countries, Rwanda, Kenya, and Ethiopia. I'll give you perhaps one final example that is in health that works across many countries, India in particular, but also includes a number of African countries, where you have the problem of rural, remote places. People have health challenges. Uh, you have a health worker there. But that health worker cannot deal with the hundreds of different myriad challenges that people have in those communities. Experts are in the capital city. They don't have the time to come to the rural areas, nor does the person from the rural area have the means to travel to the capital city to get the care they need. So there's a program called Project ECHO we support that in effect creates hubs of experts in, at the national level who then are connected through Zoom, through a series of uh, learning clinics that happen weekly with a community of practitioners in the rural areas. By bringing them together, what you would effect do is you extend expert care out from the capital city all the way to the rural areas, and you allow for two-way learning, right? So it's not only that the, the practitioners in the local level are learning from the experts, that is happening, but they too are teaching the experts around what is going on in the ground, what is working or what isn't working, what are the trends, so that allows the experts to learn. And you create essentially a learning community so that even the health workers at the rural areas and get to know each other, whether it's through Zoom or through WhatsApp, they then end up helping each other 
and create a supportive community and an expert community in which to do this. The results, again, have been spectacular. People have studied the medical results of this approach compared to the traditional approach where you actually go and get care at the expert hospital, and they find that the results are comparable. Very interesting. So really a big diversity of initiatives that you're supporting, and you expect a, a similar diversity of applications in this grant phase that you've announced call for applications for and that closes in December. We focus on three kind of big areas, education and economic opportunity. So they're, you know, they're fairly large, but those are the three sectors. And then in the gender fund, we also have created a new opportunity to promote women's leadership in law and economics, because those two domains have such an inordinate influence on things like policymaking and resource allocation. Yeah. Uh, and so the we, best we, way to have law, laws that support women is to have women lawmakers. Exactly. Um, oh, that's great to hear. Rakesh, I'm conscious that time is ticking away and we're coming very close to our allotted time now. I usually invite our guests to tell us about someone who's inspired and, and motivated them during their career or may even have motivated their career choice or their career choices and to tell us what they're reading. Just before I ask you to answer that question, in reading your biography, I saw that you were elected to, and I hope I've got the pronunciation right, Phi Beta Kappa. I don't suppose I'm the first person to ask you what that is. I know it's an august academic club, I think, but perhaps you could answer that question for us too. (laughs) Thank you. That was way back when I was doing my undergraduate education, getting my bachelor's. Phi Beta Kappa is, uh, I think, an academic society where I'm not quite sure how it works, but essentially, I think if you are seen as intellectually curious and, and pursuing academic inquiry in, an, in a serious and open-minded and interesting way, you get elected into that into that society. And I think it's a kind of recognition of that intellectual curiosity. And it's a community that, that then engages, has meetings sometimes, and, and pursues that intellectual inquiry. I'm not, uh, I must admit, I'm not a very active member of this society now. I get their newsletters and so forth, but uh, it was a, it was a nice recognition. when It sounds like the top gun of academia. <laughs> For those of us who are as old as me and remember that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now onto the question. So any figures who've inspired and motivated your career choices, you mentioned at the beginning, your background and your up in uh, Mwanza and your family situation. We have something slightly in common in in as much as my wife's family actually hailed from Zanzibar and then migrated to Kenya. They were economic migrants from Goa, India. So I I was listening intently as you told me a little bit about that background. But yes, are there any figures that have inspired and motivated your career choices? Please, if you tell us what, what you're reading. Absolutely. Yeah, we could spend an hour on just that. There are so many people, right? I think this is an important point to remember that I am where I am a little bit through my own efforts and mostly because of the systems that benefit me and the people who have helped me, who have gone out of their way to give me guidance, to help connect me, to educate me. I'll just mention too then, you know, my teacher in primary school in Wanza, his name is Richard. He was an amazing person because he taught us to believe in ourselves and he taught us to work hard, to do well, One of the lines he used to say was, always leave a place that you enter better off than you found it, whether that means cleaning up after you went and had a picnic, to going to a community, a kind of ethic of responsibility, an ethic of self-belief, an ethic of human connectedness, 
you know, the Ubuntu idea that we are as well as our community was hugely important. And we had very little. The school, for example, that the primary school had very few employees, just five teachers and one employee. So we did everything. We did all the chores. We cleaned the school. We made things happen. We didn't have tons of like books and resources. So we would use scraps of paper and, you know, toothpaste cups and uh, to do beautiful things. And it taught us that beauty and care and justice doesn't require you to be privileged. It requires you to feel a sense of solidarity uh, with each other. He had a huge influence on me. And and I'll then also mention Helen, Helen Kijo Bisimba, who is a fellow Tanzanian who until recently used to run the Legal and Human Rights Center in Tanzania. I have had the opportunity of working with her as a colleague. She has also been on the boards of the organization that I've created and ran. And I continue to serve with her on on a board of another organization. And she's she's just remarkable, not only in terms of how smart she is, but also how courageous she is, how principled she is. There are many times when she has made choices to say the truth, to stand for something that's important, even when the consequences are going to be difficult and against her, even though that would make her unpopular. And I have a huge respect for people who are principled, for people who stand for the right things and for dignity, even when it is not in their interest to do so, even when it is unpopular to do so. And in particular, standing up for the little person, the person who is excluded, the person who is not popular, the person who has a lot of stigma against them. And and Helen has always done that. So she's my role model and she teaches me a lot, has for many years and continues to to do so. Thanks, Rakesh. And the book, either that you're reading now or that you'd recommend for our audience, you're happy to share that? Oh, I wish I could talk about 10 books, but allow me to just talk about two then. One of the most profound books, it's almost 50 years old, I think, is a book called The Moral Economy of the Peasant by James Scott, who's an anthropologist at Yale. It shows basically what it means to be a peasant, really to be anybody in society who lives on the margins of how precarious life is. And how some of these interventions that governments do, that even well-minded development practitioners like us do, can actually be so harmful. And by taking a perspective of life from the bottom up, so to speak, from the point of view of the peasant and the, the moral economy, as he calls it, it helps us understand both how colonialism used to work in the past and how kind of the abuse of state power today can work. It gives us a pathway of what it would mean to truly design systems in a way that put human rights and human dignity at the, at the heart of it. In all of Jim Scott's work, and he's written a book called Seeing Like a State. He's written a book called Domination and the Arts of Resistance. All of these books have a theme of how to think about development from the perspective of the practitioners on the margins uh, that I think would educate all of us and, and, and leave us more enlightened. So read James Scott and any of the stuff he's written. Let me then end with a book I'm reading now. In fact, I'm a little more than halfway through by Martha Jones called Vanguard. This is a book focused on the United States. I don't know if you've been to the U.S. or read about U.S. history. When you think of that, you think of the founding fathers. If you go into university halls and look at pictures, you see the pictures of these distinguished old white men And the story of America to you might be like, oh, look at how these great men and their great ideas created this country. What Vanguard does is it shows, it basically tells the story of Black women leaders and how 
they played a crucial role in not only being able to bring the vote for black women, right? So the standard story of how women won the right to vote in the U.S. is one of white suffragists. And this is a story that shows how black women were crucial to that story. But it also shows you that many of the things that the entire American society today benefits from, core ideas around freedom and dignity and self-determination and rights, are ones that were fought for by these black women in ways that everybody, including white men, benefit from today. It's, it's a fascinating account. Uh, you learn about the stories, again, of women against all odds, including women who, had, who are in slavery and just kind of freed from slavery, made and helped create one of the greatest societies we have through their work and through their struggle. And it's so important to do this because our history is biased, right? If we tell the history in a certain skewed way, that shapes our future as well. So one of the best ways of, of kind of carving out a better future for ourselves is to be able to tell a more accurate and a more inclusive history of how we have got there. And these women, if you anybody who reads Vanguard by Martha Jones will find it inspiring and it'll give them lots of hope of what is possible in the future. Rakesh, thank you. That's James Scott and then Vanguard by Martha Jones. It just leaves it for me to say thank you, Rakesh, for all of your time. Thank you for introducing us to the work that you do and, and the important work that you do with Co-Impact, where you're Vice President for Programs. Thank you for telling us about the Gender Fund and the call for applications that you've launched. An appeal to any organizations in Africa, particularly in those six geographies that Rakesh mentioned and that you can find on on the Co-Impact website, that is invested in helping to improve the empowerment of women and young girls in their societies to get better representation for women at all levels of society and more women into leadership roles, again, at all levels of society, to please click on the website and apply for funding there from Co-Impact. So thanks, Rakesh. Thanks so much for your time. It's been fascinating to hear about the approach that you're taking to a really important subject and more generally to systems change. Thank you, Marcus. It's been a joy to be able to speak with you and to speak with your listeners through you. I'm truly excited to see the applications that will come in. Hopefully this podcast will encourage and excite people to also apply for the Gender Fund. So looking forward to reading those ideas. Thank you, Rakesh. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.